Anyway, this, this week is a big week. Um, Tuesday's kind of a big deal, a, a big day in our country. I guess uh, you probably caught on to some of that, that, those news a little bit. How many of you guys have already voted at this point? Um, how many of you voted Republican and how many went left? I'm just kidding. Like, what if I did that? What if I was like, all right, we're going to divide up the room right here, left and right, see who's on what side. Uh, probably be my last day uh, as pastor here. But um, it is a big day. I don't know if you've paid attention at all or not. Uh, there's a lot of madness. There's a lot of craziness going around our country uh, at this point in time. And uh, all you have to do to, to be aware of that is drive around your neighborhoods and you're going to see all the, the yard sign wars that are going on and the, the madness that's, that's there. Have you guys been enjoying that at all? Kind of you see the neighbors, like you got one, one neighbor over here that's all right, and the other neighbor over here is all left, and there's just like kind of this battle going on. Uh, Dallas Morning News did an article about this a little while ago. I thought it was hilarious, but uh, I thought it was interesting anyway. But um, I think I've got a picture of it right here. But this is one uh, that was taken in the, on the M Streets. And this is just the up-close picture because if you were to see the whole, the whole thing, it would kind of disturb you a little bit. This is a duplex right here. And these two neighbors are just like duking it out. I mean, you got the Trump campaign. you got the Biden campaign. They're going head-to-head -head over there. If you were to scan out a little bit, you would see like every inch of their yard is covered in political yard signs. Every single inch of it. Have you, I mean, if you guys, I love this. I love going around and seeing some of these things. I was walking around in the neighborhood a little while ago, and there's somebody in the neighborhood across the street and stuff. Massive. They've burned giant bubble letters into the grass in their yard. Big giant Trump right there. Just burned it into the grass. And then, of course, next door, you've got the big, you've got the big Biden signs next door. And uh, if you saw the escalation of this, you would understand what was going on. But in the weeks ahead, uh, there were handmade signs out there saying, hey, if you come and steal my yard sign again, I'm just going to contribute more and more to the campaign, and you're going to be helping him get elected. You know, it's like all these battles and stuff going on. It's absolutely insane. Uh, evidently, people are booby-trapping their signs now. Have you seen this? They're putting like barbed wire on top of their thing. So if you come and try to steal their sign, you're going to get sliced up and everything like that. I mean, it's absolutely insanity right now. And so it's kind of confirmed a couple effort. It's affirmed a couple things that I already held to be true about humanity. Uh, number one, like we absolutely are people who know how to worship. I mean, right? It, it, we are absolutely a people who know how to worship. Don't let anyone tell you, I am just not a worshiper. You were walking around and you were seeing, and even this week, you were going to be hearing out loud an insane amount of worship over fallible human beings. So don't you dare for a second believe, hey, we are not, we are not a people who don't know how to worship. Number two, we are people who have no problem whatsoever proselytizing or trying to tell other people the things that we believe to be true and expecting that they are going to come along to our side too. You've heard me talk about this one a, a number of times, but there is a growing affirmation culturally that it is arrogant and it is wrong, it is morally wrong to try to proselytize or share the gospel or communicate in such a way where you expect someone to hopefully convert into your way of things. And that is just absolutely not the conviction we're seeing nationally. I'm driving around some of the neighborhoods kind of going, where is that conviction when it comes to politics? Or where is that conviction when it comes to social matters or where is that conviction even when it comes to our favorite sports team or something like that? It's conveniently not there. And you want to know why it's not there? Because when you firmly believe that something's not only absolutely true, but critically important for other people to know and to believe, it is expected that you're going to go and you're going to tell everyone in the world about it. 
And so, like, my hope this week, I do hope you get out there and you, and you let your voice be known. Uh, you, you submit your vote and you do your thing over there. Uh, but more than that, my hope for us today is that we are going to grow in a personal conviction that the gospel is not only true, but it is critically, critically important for the world to know. And I think it's exactly what our passage is going to help us with today. So again, if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 3, I'm going to hang out in the first four verses right here and then jump over to 9 and go all the way to 22. Um, and that's where we're going to go here today. Uh, the question, if you're, if you're just jumping into our series on Romans, the question that Paul is addressing here in this series um, is why is the gospel so critically important for everybody to know? Right? Like, why is the gospel worth telling the world about? Why do we come and respond to the gospel with a heart of worship? Uh, beyond that, like, why uh, does humanity need to be saved? And really more than that, even so, like, why do you and I need the righteousness of God to be true in our life? We, Paul says that. Romans chapter 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the, to the Greek. Why do we need the righteousness? It is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Why do we need that righteousness as human beings? And so he gets into it in chapter 1, and he basically says this. He says, all of humanity is completely broken from the secular people who are outside these walls, but even on the re religious people, even in you and me, like we can come into church, we can do church in such a way that reflects there is still a brokenness and a need and a hunger for the Lord Jesus Christ that may not have been there before. And so all of humanity is totally and completely broken. And so chapter one, you're going to remember this is a lot of they language about how bad it can get outside the walls of, of, a, of a church building or outside the walls here. Um, and then number two is going to turn the, turn the attention back around and say, okay, you religious people, um, you people who have faith, you do religious things, right? you grew up with this in your home, you religious people, turn the mirror on yourself and look at yourself because you do the exact same thing. And so chapter two is going to be a lot of us language to essentially communicate how insufficient empty religiosity is to satisfy and save. Empty religiosity being external religious practice that is devoid of anything real going on inside of your soul, devoid of anything real in worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. External religious practice that has no transformation that's taken place inside and why it is insufficient to satisfy and save. And so chapter three, Paul is going to come in here. The question that he's going to essentially ask is this. Okay, so, so if if it's not all, if religion is not all that, right? If, if religion needs to be brought down a tiny, tiny bit in Paul's estimation, and he kind of keeps humbling the religious person, then what advantage has the Jew? And that's how he begins things. Like, what's the advantage of being a Jew? God, Paul, it seems like you're bagging on religion a whole lot, and you're kind of, uh, you're, you're throwing a lot of punches at religious people and kind of saying, hey, look at yourself, and hey, like all this. So what advantage is the Jew? Are you really saying that there's no advantage whatsoever to this long history with God? Are you really saying, Paul, that there's no advantage whatsoever to having a strong Christian home to raise your kids in? Are you really saying that? Are you really saying that there's no advantage to having faithful parents or having a, a faithful church upbringing for your kids and for your family to grow up in? Like, that's the question that he's going to be dealing with here in this text. How many of you, real quick, would say, hey, that was my, my, my heritage. That's where I grew up. I grew up in that faithful Christian home. I had those kind of parents, and that was, the, that was my story too. And I'm looking at this thing, kind of got to go, at some point you're going, hey, that was a great experience. And so what advantage has the Jew? What advantage is it to have that kind of a religious, faithful Christian testimony in the home? And so he's going to essentially get into that in chapter 3, the good, the bad, and the great of a religious heritage. 
And so he begins in verse 1, and he says this. Well, again, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision being the sign of the covenant here? And he answers that in verse 2, saying, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so it's not just that the oracles of God, meaning the word of God, was delivered over to the Jews in hopes that they may grab hold of it and maybe learn a few things and maybe understand a few things about God. And what he's saying here is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the word of God, which is a word entrusted that carries a lot more responsibility than simply being delivered something. Right? We've talked about it in the past. There's a big difference between delivering a newspaper to somebody's front door and entrusting an engagement ring to the person you're trying to propose to in that moment. Like, there's a massive difference. I don't know if you ever had a newspaper route or anything before. I did that for a very, very small season when I was young. Like When I was doing a newspaper route, I did not care what the people did with that newspaper I delivered to them. I wrapped up that thing. I threw it at their front door. I didn't care if you picked it up. I didn't care if you used it in a, in a fireplace or if you read it, if you paid attention to what you're reading. Didn't care about it. All I, all I was doing was delivering the news that day. Very different from when I proposed to Cat. When I proposed to Cat, like I put a lot of thought and attention and detail into that proposal. And I came to her one day and I asked her a very, very specific question. And then I got down on a knee and I pulled out a ring and I didn't just throw it at her hoping that she was going to get it. I actually put that ring upon her finger as I asked her that question because there was a lot of responsibility that was coming along with that question. And it's exactly what he's saying right here. The Jews, like you had an advantage because you were entrusted with the word of God. You were given the word of God, and it carries a lot of responsibility. Parents, as you're listening here, parents at home, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. If you have that faith, and you've got little ones or middle-aged ones in your home, you still have influence of people in a family or anything around you, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. If you're a believer in a workplace, and you've got non-believers around you, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. If you've got neighbors on your street or non-believers anywhere in the world around you, and you know the truth of God's word, you have been entrusted with the word of God. And that is an incredible privilege. What he's saying here is, yes, there is an advantage to being trusted with the word of God. How many of you would say, um, I, I did come, how many of you said, I, I did come to faith at a young age? All right, this is what Proverbs is going to say. This is going to say, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Like we are here, many of you are here today because you have not departed from the things that you learned when you were a kid. Pew Research is going to say this. Pew is going to say that 85% of believers came to faith sometime between the ages of 4 and 14. 85% of believers came to faith sometime between the ages of 4 and 14. There's another 10% of believers that came sometime between the ages of 15 and 30. But after 30 years old, there's only about 4% of believers that come to faith. Another 1% was before the age of 5 years old. The whole point being, there is absolutely an advantage to being raised in a Christian home and having a Christian environment around you because you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. You've been given the truth of his word in order to pass on the faith. But the point that he's trying to make right here is this. As good and as great as an advantage as all that stuff may be, no matter how hard you try, you still cannot force faith. As great of an advantage as it may be to have a biblical home, to have the knowledge of the truth of God's word, people around you that are willing to listen, no matter how hard you try, you still cannot force faith. It's what he's saying here in verse, thir in verse 3. There's still going to be some who are unfaithful. 
And he's speaking directly to the Jews. What about the Jews who are unfaithful, who are not believing at this point in time? And the good news is what he says right here is God is still faithful even when we're unfaithful. Nevertheless, the point that he's making right here is you cannot force faith. As great of an advantage as the Jews had having the law of God, having the community of believers, knowing and understanding how to worship God well, you cannot guarantee the successful transmission of faith from one generation to the next. It's the brother and sister in your home. You had the exact same parents, you had the exact same church experience, you had the exact same things, yet you clung to faith and they ran away. It's the best friend who grew up in the Christian home, they ran away, you didn't have half those privileges and advantages, and yet you still somehow clung to faith. It's exactly what he's saying right here. Now, here's why it's such a problem. He continues in verse 9, and he's going to come back to the original question, because he's kind of going, okay, uh, you can't force faith, and so he's going, okay, um, what then? Are Jews really better off then? And he comes back to the original question. <laughs> He's going, okay, it's great that we have the word of God. It's great that we have the law of God and all the traditions and everything else. But are we really, is it really an advantage then if you can't force it? And so he comes back and he, he answers it a different way this time. He says this. He says, no, not at all. Why? Because we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all underneath sin. So at the very beginning of the chapter, he's essentially saying, yeah, a religious heritage, a, a, a heritage, a Christian home, a religious foundation, it's an incredible blessing because you have access to the word of God. But on the other hand, like it, it's not. On the other hand, like it, it's not able to do what you want it to do. And the reason is uh, because all of us are underneath this curse of sin and we can't do anything about that curse of sin. And so what follows here in this text, there are going to be five curses of sin that do not play well with a self-help kind of faith. And so if you're part of this tradition that's kind of going, hey, I want to feel great, I want to feel powerful, I want to be able to do things my own way, he's going to shatter that whole myth of religion that many in America today fall in line with. He's going to follow that. He's going to break apart the self-sufficiency. Uh, uh, but I'm telling you, church, like, like this is where worship is born. This is where worship is born, when, when our self-sufficiency is completely demolished and is completely destroyed, and you are able to see just how far God was willing to go in rescue of you in order to bring you home. I'm telling you, church, like that is where worship will be born. I'll, I'll never forget, um, there was a time I was playing Little League Baseball. I think it was probably sixth or seventh grade, something like that. My dad was out of town for a business trip, and, uh, and I was kind of bummed. We were in the playoffs. It was a really big tournament that we were in. And, uh, and so I was there, and he was out of town, and I knew he wasn't going to be able to make it. And so I get there, and it's in the third inning. And I look over to the stands, and just lo and behold, Dad is somehow there. He was in a different state earlier that morning. And somehow Dad came home early from this business trip, and he came home early to go and to be there to go watch that game. And I remember coming back and coming home being like, why, Dad, how did you make that game? He's like, I cut, my, I cut my trip short. I wanted to come back, and I wanted to be there and support you in that game. Like, we understand, church, when you know how far someone is willing to go in order to love you and support you, like, there is something that takes place inside of our soul where you gravitate to that person, and, like, that is where worship is born, and it's the whole point of this section right here. So in a time when many of us may want to resist the curse of sin, we may want to resist total depravity and how far these things may go, what I'm saying is this is where evangelists are born and worshipers are born. So do not overlook what he is saying right here. But it is going to feel a little bit like piling on. The first thing he comes in and he says, okay, there's none who are righteous, not even one. This is the curse of sin. It's why, it's why you cannot guarantee faith in the home. There are none who are righteous, not even one person, not even Billy Graham, 
not even, uh, not even Moses, not even Abraham, not even David, not even Mother Teresa, not even Tim Tebow, um, not even your grandma who's perfect and everybody loves her. And like one of the, like what he's saying, he's, there is none who are righteous before God. You're going to come before a holy God, the just and holy judge. And there's no one who's going to be able to stand on that day when God looks at you in your natural state and says, you are righteous and in and of your own self, you can come into my presence and enjoy fellowship with me, the perfect and righteous, holy judge. There's none of us that are going to be able to stand that day. He continues in saying, he says this in verse 11, there's none of us who understands. This is the natural state of our heart. Our mind is warped. And so when we think about God naturally, we do not think true things. We have a warped thinking process that does not comprehend what is actually true. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, but church, think about some of the things that we are saying today. We are saying nonsensical things that are not even logically true. We're saying things like all roads lead to the exact same God. Never mind the fact that all the different religious roads have contradictory views about that God, have contradictory statements from that God, and contradictory pathways in order to get to that God. And we're still believing, yeah, all different roads lead to the exact same God. And we're saying things like it is arrogant to believe that you actually know the truth. When we turn around and we go, hey, all the roads lead to the exact same God, which assumes, hey, you know the truth about what may lead to that one true God. It makes no sense. It's not even logically possible that these things are coming into place, but this is how we think. This is what Paul's saying. Naturally, in and of yourself, you're not going to understand truth. You're going to try to comprehend the eternal things of God, and it's just going to go haywire. It's not even going to make any sense. I'll never forget sitting in my English lit class in Texas A&M, learning about the rise of postmodernism and how we even got to where we were today. This is not a this is not a seminary class. It's not theology or anything. We're sitting in English lit in Texas A&M. And they were talking about how postmodernism came in response to modernism. Modernism being the era from 1600 to 1960 that evidently was all about science. Science is king. Rationality was king. Knowledge is king. We are growing and expanding. We are learning and developing so many different things. The mind is incredible. People are discovering this. And so from that era, 1600 to 1960, people believe knowledge is king. And you're getting to 1960, and something's taken place around that time. Around the turn of the century, early 1900s to the mid-1940s and stuff, you've got two world wars. You've got a Great Depression. You've got an impending thing going on uh, in Vietnam. You've got families that are coming back from war. All of a sudden, they're crumbling and they're falling apart. And people are realizing knowledge isn't actually king. You cannot know your way into perfection or whatever it may be. And so what happens is a response against what's knowledge. And you're saying, hey, if knowledge isn't king, then what can you really know? And it leads to this place today where every single thing is being deconstructed and you're going back and you're looking at this thing kind of going, what can you actually know about institutions that God has given to us? Think about some of the different institutions that we are deconstructing and breaking apart today. Things like the family, things like marriage, things like sexuality, things like gender, things like truth. We're talking about things like um, alternative facts. Right? We're talking about alternative facts and alternative truths and things like that. This is what Paul's saying right here. In our natural state, apart from God, our mind is going to be warped. We're not going to understand the things of God. We're not going to understand what's actually true about him. He continues and he says, there's none of us who actually seek God. There's none of us who seek him. In other words, there are no true seekers. And I know it feels like there may be true seekers, but I want you to notice what he does not say right here. He's not saying that there's no one who wants good things from God. He's not saying there's no one who's seeking blessing from God. There's no one who's seeking 
privilege from God. There's no one who's seeking peace from God. There's no one who's seeking salvation from God. There's no one who's seeking favor from God. What he's saying is there's no one in their natural state that is actually seeking God. There's no one in their natural state that is saying, God, I want to know you. I want to know you, all of your beauty, all of your glory, who you truly are. And there's a difference between seeking things from God and seeking God for who he is. And what he's saying right here, there is none of us in our natural state that is actually seeking God. And the whole point of this whole section is we are not seeking him. We are not coming to him. And we are in desperate need of a God who will come to us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And church, this is the curse of sin, and he keeps going over and over again. We turn to ourselves, all have turned away, and together become useless in verse 12. Uh, in other words, like we're, in some translations, it's going to say worthless. It doesn't mean that you have no worth before God. But what he's saying is in our natural selves, we have no use to his kingdom purposes. We're going to hear things like Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. And we're going to hear that we have purpose, but we're never going to go before the Lord our God and say, Father, what is the purpose you've created me to do? What are the things that you've called me to do for your purposes and for your glory? We're going to talk about things like, hey, uh, like, I, like I want to find my own destiny, right? Like there's a lot of destiny-finding talk that is around the world today. I'm going to find my purpose. I'm going, to de- I'm going to define my own purpose. And we're going to say things like that all the time, and we're going to pursue those things. But we are going to be the ones who are defining those purposes, and they're always going to be to self-centered ends in order to climb a ladder, in order to have a little bit more comfort, and in order to have a little bit better life or a little bit better reputation or a little bit better name. And in our natural state, we're never going to come before God and say, Father, why have you created me? What have you designed my life to do and to be for the praise and for the glory of your own name? It's just not who we are. And he keeps going. He says, there's none who does good, not even one. In other words, like, not even our good things are going to be considered good. Because our, our motives, church, like they're always going to be warped. This is the whole point under the curse of sin. We have a heart that is wandering, and so our motives will never always be good. And so it's not necessarily that you cannot go and do good things. It is a good thing for the Marine to throw his body on top of a grenade in order to save his friends. It is a good thing for the single mom to give her life for the, for the goodness and for the blessing of her children. Like those are legitimately good things. But the point that he's trying to say right here, or the point that he's trying to make is that good things aren't actually good unless the motive is also good. And what he's saying is, apart from God, our hearts are never going to be in line with him. And so our motives are always going to be wandering. And, and we see this all over the place, church. Like it is possible to go and to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. I mean, we see this all the time. If you've ever gone to a timeshare presentation, you know exactly what that's like, right? You show up and like, they're, hey, spa treatments and dinners and nice, you know, discount, discount hotels and all these kinds of things. It's not because they love you, right? They're trying to get something. They're trying to get you to invest a lot of money in what they're trying to sell. I was reading a fascinating article by Oxford Press a little while ago. It was talking about how a number of students, they came together and did this experiment. They wanted to see how honest people really were. And so they, uh, they did this experiment at their own coffee shop. And uh, they wanted to see, okay, will people pay the same price for their goods and services in an honesty box rather than a cash register where somebody's coming and taking their, 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 their money? Of course, you know how that's going to work. There's no question how that's going to work. But they go and they, they set up this honesty box and they set up a little price sheet. It's got flowers on it. It looks really nice. <clears throat> and they set that up at the countertop. No one's there to, uh, to pay attention. After two weeks, they're losing all their money, of course. And they're going, oh my gosh, what's going on? I guess humanity is really not all that. 
And uh, so they come and they do something different. Instead of the price sheet with flowers on it and everything, they put eyeballs on the price sheet. And then they set up a, a virtual camera next door, next to the little thing. Uh, and they set up a live stream of what was going on. Lo and behold, they found that people were willing to pay three times as much when they were being recorded for what they were doing than when no one was paying attention to their thing. Point of the matter, church, is like it is possible to go and do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. And it's exactly what Paul's saying right here, like there's no one who does good. And so that's part of what he's saying right here. The other part is, uh, even if we hypothetically could do good for all the right reasons, what he's saying here, it would still never be enough to be considered good before holy God. I love the way J.D. Greer talks about this. He says, he said, it'd be kind of like watching your spouse tip a bellhop just after they committed adultery. You're watching the whole scene from across the street at this hotel. And he goes, it's honestly, it's a great thing that they would go and they would tip a bellhop. But in light of everything else that's been done, no spouse in their right mind is ever going to be satisfied by a tip. And so it's exactly what he's saying right here. He's saying, in light of everything that has gone on externally in our behavior, internally in our motivations, in our thinking, in our warped desires and everything like that, in light of everything else that's gone on, all of our good deeds are at best like a tip before a holy God. And so there's none of us who do good before that holy God, not even one. And he continues, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Why? Because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, does it not? We know this. Like, you want to know what's in somebody else's heart? Pay attention to the things that they say. Pay attention to their social media feed. Pay attention to the things that are coming out of their mouth. You want to do a self-examination? Father, what's going on inside of me? Pay attention to the things that come out of your mouth from your spouse's perspective, from your kid's perspective, from your boss's perspective. Right, pay attention to those things like the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He comes in and he says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And here it is. It's all because they have no fear of God whatsoever in their hearts. There's no reverence or awe for the one true God who's created them and spoke them into existence. There's no honor or respect for who he is. There's no acknowledgement of his wisdom or his power or any of the things that he's done. Church, that is the natural heart. Like that's what it means to be underneath the curse of sin. And here it is, church, the greatest of Christian homes and the greatest of religious environments can do nothing to change that heart. But here's the good news of what he's saying is what it can do is it can point you to the one who can. Church, that's the whole point of this entire section. Like the whole point is not to crush you with guilt. It's to drive you to Jesus so you can know the extent of his love and know how much you've been forgiven. Church, like everything that you could cling to for merit is being stripped away in this text. Like everything that you can cling to to say, hey, here's why I need to be approved. It is being ripped apart from what you would cling to and you would clinch with your hands. It is all being stripped away, all your religious practice, all your good deeds, because none of it has anything to do with why God loves you. Church, he doesn't love you because of what you bring to the table. He loves you because you're you, and he loves you because he's love. That is who God is. He is not just somebody who does loving things. He is the very definition of love. It's what the word of God says. He defines what love is. This is who he actually is. And in his great love, he created you in his image. He fearfully and wonderfully knit you together in your mother's womb. He numbered the hairs upon your head. He gave you purpose and beauty, and he rejoices over you with singing. And he does every single bit of that while knowing perfectly true the motivations that are in our heart, while knowing the, the, the sickness of our sin. 
He does all of those things knowing that our hearts are going to be numb to him day after day after day, that our minds will be warped, that our legal standing before him is ruined, that our mouths are going to be full of poison, and our hands are going to be covered in blood. Church, who in the world loves like this? Like none of what we're seeing right here, none of it makes any sense that he wouldn't just walk away and say, I'm done with you. You are unlovable, therefore you do not get my love. And Paul's gonna say, church, he's gonna say, all of your religious environment, like it should have prepared you for the beauty of the gospel because the beauty of the gospel is that while you and I were unlovable, God still fixed his love on you and me in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the sinless life you could not live, to die the sinner's death that you were supposed to die, that you could be brought back into right relationship with him and be made acceptable before him regardless of anything you could bring to the table, anything that may condemn you because of your sin, anything that may justify you because of your right. Righteousness. It is all stripped from your hands because none of it is what he looks to when he looks at you with love. Church, like, who does this? Who does this? Paul's going to say like all of the law, all of the prophets to the Jews, to the religious people who had those things, it should have been preparing you for the gospel because it's been telling you the story all along. And the Jews are going to be looking at this and they're going to be going like, where did it tell us that? I don't remember hearing specifically about Jesus and it could be pointed to this story, this story, this story, the law, the sacrificial system, like the rainbow back in Noah, like back in the, back in the garden, right? There's a promise, right? It's story after story after story. I'm thinking of Hosea and Gomer, probably one of the most beautiful stories of God's love for broken humanity. You remember this one back in Hosea, right? The one who wrote the, the, one who wrote the book. God comes to the prophet and he essentially says, okay, Hosea, I've got an assignment for you. I don't want you to just simply go and preach this time. I want you to go and live out this message. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute. And I want you to stay faithful to her. And you're going to have all these children. They're not going to be your own children. But no matter what, I want you to stay faithful. Can you imagine being Hosea at this point in time, fresh out of seminary, excited to get his new church, new temple that he gets to go to, new, new ministry assignment. And God's like, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry this person who will only, only, only cheat on you, leave you, abandon you, let you feel like you're worthless. Here's what I want you to do. And that's the worst assignment I could possibly imagine. But God's gonna come and say, you have to understand the depth of your sin if you're ever gonna understand the depth of my love. Church, that's the whole point of this whole thing. You have to understand the depth of your sin if you're ever gonna comprehend my love. And so Hosea's like, fine, God, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna do this thing. And you remember how the whole story plays out. He goes and he marries this woman named Gomer. She's a prostitute. And it's not long before she starts doing the things that she does. And they start having babies. And he starts realizing, hey, these aren't actually my biological children here. In fact, he actually names one of them Lo Ami, which simply means not mine. He named his kid, not mine. All right, this is what he does. And so it's not long before she finally leaves him, and she realizes after a few kids, she's going, hey, you know what? My time is done. I kind of need to be me. I need to do me for a little while. I, need to, I, I don't want to feel constrained. And she goes, and she runs away. And in the middle of that running, one of these men takes her and sells her on a slave block. And it's there in the middle of this story that God comes back to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. It's time for you to go and find your wife. And you can imagine at this point in time, Hosea is arguing with God and he's going, okay, God, I, you don't understand what she's done. She doesn't want me. She doesn't even want me. She doesn't even understand my love for her. She doesn't think well, right? She doesn't even want me at this point in time. She's abandoned me over and over and over again. She has not been faithful. 
you don't understand. God, God's got to go, yeah, I understand a little bit more than you, you think I do. It's a whole point that I'm having you reenact right now is that this is our relationship. This is what your sinfulness is to me. It's constant wandering. It's constant rebellion. It's constant running away. And what you need to understand is my faithfulness. So I want you to go and I want you to go find your wife. And so it's exactly what Hosea does. He goes and he searches the red light district day and night. You can imagine having him having conversation after conversation trying to find his wife. Finally, he finds her, finds her standing on a slave block. You can imagine this conversation where he comes up and he sees her standing on this block and he walks up to the man in charge and he simply says, excuse me, sir, like that's my wife and I need to bring her home. Can I please have my wife? And he goes, no, 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 it's not, not so fast, my friend. Like that's not your wife anymore. You need to pay the price if you want to have your wife and you want to bring her home. So Hosea digs into his purse and his pockets and he pulls out all this money and he pays the price for his own bride. And at this point in the story, you're sitting there going like, why in the world would you need to pay money for someone who was already yours? You were in covenant relationship with her. She was your wife. You had more right to this relationship with her than this man had over her, yet you still paid the price. Psalm, is gonna re- Psalm 24 is gonna explain it like this. The earth is the Lord's church, all that it contains, the world and everyone who dwells in it. In other words, we too were already his, but we much like Gomer also ran. And the problem with our running is that it has a price and the price of our running was death and separation. And so God in his infinite love sent his one and only son Jesus to come and to suffer and die upon a cross so that he too could purchase back what was already his. Church, can you imagine coming home and being bought back by your husband you you betrayed over and over and over again? And he comes back and he renews his covenant and he renews his faithfulness and he renews his loving affection towards his wife. Can you imagine what would be going on inside of your soul towards that man if you understood there was nothing you could do to separate you from the love of that man? You come home and you're saying, I tried to run. And he's just going, yeah, you're not fast enough, babe. You're not fast enough. You're not going far enough. I I try to hide in the red district. He's like, I'll go there to find you. Can you imagine what that would be like coming home and realizing there's this much that I'm willing to run away. All of my life, I've wanted nothing to do with him and he kept going over and over and over again to bring me home. Church, I'm telling you, like this is where worship is born. When you understand how far he was willing to go in order to bring you back home, and what price he was willing to pay to make you right. That is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to enter into the curse of our sin, the depth of our depravity, in order to understand the depth of his love for you and for me. The beauty of this story, I love, he keeps going. And you know what Gomer's name literally means? Her name literally means completion. In other words, like, In other words, her life was fully complete with sin and idolatry. That's what it is. She was totally and completely overwhelmed with sin. You know what Hosea's name means? It means salvation. Yeshua. Does that sound familiar at all? And what he's saying, the law, the prophet, they've been telling this story forever. And when we look at Hosea, we should look at it and say, Hosea is my Jesus. Jesus is my Hosea. I am Gomer. He is my Hosea. There's nothing I can bring to the table because he has already paid the price. And because he has paid the price for my life and for my soul, I am totally complete in him. Church, that's where worship is born. It's an understanding how far he was willing to go 
to bring you home and to bring you in a right relationship with him. I'll tell you, I had one of the most encouraging conversations this past week. We were interviewing, as many of you know, we're interviewing worship pastors and Right now, many of you ask about Kim. She's temporary right now. Uh, we would hire her in a second, but um, her family is, is serving at another church, and so that's a temporary solution. But we are interviewing worship leaders right now. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and an incredible conversation. We were bringing in this couple here and got to know the husband here this past week and I'm hearing his story and his testimony. And he was asking about our evangelism ministry. He goes, do you have a response team? He's like, I want to be involved in evangelism at a church. And I was like, I was telling him about a number of different opportunities and everything. I was like, tell me your story. Like, why, why is evangelism so important to you? And he goes into his story and he just goes into the deepest, darkest details of what God has brought him from. There's addiction, there's darkness, there's this, that, and the other. And in the middle of that place, he goes, God came and he found me and he brought me home and he brought me cleansing and he brought me forgiveness and he brought me a joy that I have never tasted ever in my life. He goes, what else am I supposed to do with my life except tell everyone in the world about what he's done for me? Church, that's where worship is born. Evangelists are born in the understanding of how far God was willing to go to bring you back home. And my hope and my prayer for us today is that you would sit and you would come and you would be reminded of your own personal story, that you would identify with Gomer and say, I am Gomer, Jesus is my Hosea. And when I was running, when I was lost, when I was dead in my sins, God still loved me. And I tried to run away, but God was so much faster. He was willing to go to all the dark places in order to bring me home. My hope and my prayer for us is that we would be a church that worships and gladly shares the joy and the hope that we have in our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because we know what he has gone through in order to bring us back home. And so church, there's an advantage to having a religious home. There's an advantage to having a Christian heritage. You have the word of God. You have access to it day and night. And no, it can't save you. It can do nothing about the sickness that's in your soul, but what it can do is it can drive you to the one who can save them. Again, my hope and my prayer for you and for us is that you would not allow your kids, the people that are in your home, the people that are in your environment, to go and to miss the beauty of Jesus in the telling of these stories and in the passing on of the faith. He is a hero of every single story. He is the one that transcended oceans, walked across oceans in order to bring you back home. All for the praise and for the glory of his name. Father, we love you, God. We worship you. There's a lot of worship that's going to be taking place loudly um, this week in a number of different places. And God, and I pray that our worship of you would be louder. Father, we remember that just like Gomer, we were unlovable. We were under the curse of sin. We didn't want you. We didn't seek you. We couldn't even do enough good. The good that we did do was not even of pure motive. And Father, you still didn't even care. You still sent Jesus to come and to live the sinless life and to die the sinner's death for us that we could be brought home. Father, today we wanted to say simply thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the love that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Church, I just want to give you a moment. Would you sit there and would you just reflect on the fullness of what it is that God has saved you from? Maybe for you it's very, very tangible. And like my friend we were talking to this past week, you're looking at very, very specific things and darkness and red light kind of places that you've been to that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God has saved you from. Would you come and would you just take a moment and reflect on whatever that may be? Maybe for you it's religiosity. 
and that he's rescued you from self-righteousness, understanding the grace that's in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we say thank you today. Would you let worship rise up? Would you give us a conviction that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be known all the way around the world? We love you, God. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen.